Fellowship time on Thanksgiving. Let's go. Hey, uh, junior high, you can head out now if you want. Junior high kids, while everyone's kind of wrapping up, if you guys want to head out to the deck. Uh, and me, Caleb, if you're not familiar, we do have a junior high little gathering on Sunday mornings. They meet the youth pastor on the deck, and then uh, they head next door to hang out with him for the service. Well, good morning. I finally get your attention here. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Thank you. I'm so glad that you guys are here. Really, really, I am thankful that you guys were able to make it this morning. Uh, if you're here for the first time in the front pocket of the seat in front of you, there's a little information on us, a little QR code. Hopefully you know how to use those. If not, uh, you can ask our youth pastor. He'll tell you how to do it. But uh, it does give you a, a link to our, we have an app. Uh, we have all of our social media stuff. We're in all those places. So try the best we can to connect with you on many levels. And if you're new, we just want to say thanks for being here. I know some of you are, uh, at times you're looking for a church, you're looking for a church home, and uh, we'd love to have you as part of our faith family. But those of you who are here week in, week out, I, again, I just want you to know what we just got out of Thanksgiving and very thankful for all of you, very appreciative uh, of our church family and what God's doing in our church. A couple things to make you aware of as I'm handling announcements this morning. Next Saturday is our women's luncheon. So gals, if you're looking for a place to connect and you want to hang out and have some good food, I uh, want to invite you to register for this online uh, or on the app. You just click on there, sign up, and come on down. There's nothing for you to bring unless someone's told you specifically, uh, but we would love to have you come if you're a lady. Uh, and then starting uh, in January, we're doing uh, some community dinners and so we're facilitating that. And the way that we're doing this is, again, online. You, you pull up <clears throat> a little place to connect on there. There's a, a little slide. looks just like this online. Click on that. You can register for it. And this is just an opportunity for you to get to know other people in the church. And so this is how we're doing it. Uh, you go on there. You can sign up to either join a home, uh, and then you'll get information pending once you sign up where the home is, location, and all that. But we're also asking some of you that want to host. I know some of you love hosting people. Uh, you love the, the, to be hospitable. You have the gift of hospitality. If that's you, sign up to be a host home. There's an opportunity to do that online as well for people to join in, and then we'll get you all connected. So make sure you sign up for all those things also. Uh, and then uh, one other last thing. We are starting our Advent series next week. Some of you are, are new to the church, and you, you are, you, you're used to what we would call Protestant Christianity, which is what we are. But so many of you are like, what in the—I <laughs> had people ask me this after the first service. What's Advent? Advent just means the coming, the great parousia. It's, it's the coming of the Lord. It's to prepare. So basically what's happened in our church calendar over the centuries, someone said, listen, let's take the month of December and let's take all four weeks to, uh, to celebrate the coming of Jesus. And the advent of not only what has occurred, the, the past event of the coming of Christ, but also anticipating the coming advent of our Savior when he redeems all of humanity unto himself. Uh, and so that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. What we have planned for you this Christmas, I think we might do it at Easter. We want to see how it goes uh, during the season. I won't be preaching next week. Brad Beers will launch our Advent series. <clears throat> and when you come in next week, every one of you uh, will receive a card. You can take multiple cards if you want. On that card is an opportunity during the Advent season, during the Christmas season, for you to write a, a name of someone on that card that you've been praying for or that you know. It could be a brother, a sister. It might even be your mom and dad. It could be a coworker. It could be anybody that you can think of, someone that you— uh, It could be the, the guy that you buy your energy drink from uh, every morning at 7-Eleven. That, that's me, okay? Just so we're aware, I know who that guy is. I'm praying for him. Uh, you can write his name down. Don't put their last name down because we don't want to make it weird uh, because we're, we're asking you to pray that those people would come to know Christ at some point, point hopefully during the Christmas season. Our messages are going to be geared a little bit more on the evangelism side for the next four weeks, uh, starting next week. And so we're praying that as you pray for those names, you write those names down, that as you're praying for them, you'd invite them and hopefully the Lord would bring them to salvation. Now, what we're also gonna do is once you write those names down, there'll be some places around the, the, uh, the church where you can hang that name. And then we're asking you as congregants, as family members of the church, to look at those names, take a picture of them, write them down, and make an effort over the next month to be praying for those names and praying for their salvation. And then we're hoping, hey, we'll just see what God does uh, during that season. And then Brad Beers, on the heels of that, 
we're, we're going to be teaching some new believers classes. Uh, this will be a good class for some of you. I've, I've spoken with some of you recently. Uh, you don't have to necessarily be a new believer. You could be saved for just, you know, three, four, five years. You have a lot of questions, maybe. Maybe even 10 years, you have a lot of questions. We want to invite you to come to this class uh, three, four weeks long. Is it three weeks or four weeks? Three weeks long. So not real long. It'll be happening during our equipping hour, which is what we do at the 1030 gathering. So again, just be praying for that. Pray for salvations. Pray about names. Be thinking about that. Uh, and then we'll make an effort to just see what God does. Yeah? You good with that? Um, Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> that's where we'll be this morning. If you have your Bible or your device that you read on, go ahead and go there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you want to use one of ours, or you need one, you want to own one, you can buy one of these. And then, I'm um, uh, um, not buy one, you can have one of these. You, you can buy our free Bibles too if you want, I guess. I had up here too, um, uh, it's gone, Amy took it from me. I, I mentioned in the bookstore, both for Christmas gifts, but also our bookstore has all kinds of great selections. And, um, and in the bookstore, uh, we have a bunch of Advent devotionals. So if you're someone who wants to walk through with your family or your wife or your husband, whatever it may be, some devotionals during the Advent season, we have several books available in the bookstore. I mentioned I had several copies. I had it right here in front of me. Amy took it from me. Right, Amy? I imagine you took it from me. You, you did? I think that's a thumbs up. The, uh, so it was, the, it was Charles. It was a book um, kind of gathered together, a bunch of Charles Spurgeon devotions. They totally sold out in the first gathering. So, um, But there are other ones there that are really good if you want to ask me. You don't even have to ask me. If it's out there, it's because the pastoral staff likes it. That's basically how those books end up there. If there's something there that's heretical or wrong, it's because Brad Beers put it there. And it just, it just let's be clear. And then we'll remove it. Just let me know. Okay. Um, yeah. If you would... As is our custom, I want to encourage you to stand with me as we read from these verses. If you're new this morning, we do this not to be weird and religious, but rather just to prepare our hearts uh, with our bodies and to stand and to present ourselves before the Lord and say, God, we know that your word is true. We know that your word is trustworthy. I want to hear from you, Lord. I want to honor you. I want to love you. I want to worship you. I want to give you the attention you deserve. And so we read from Ephesians 6.10 together. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. With all perseverance, making supplications for the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Lord, these are your words. They're trustworthy and true. And we trust them to do a work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, we're gonna wrap this up <clears throat> in part because we have to Advent's coming, Christmas is coming. I'd love to spend more time in each individual piece of the armor. And maybe at some point in the future I can do that. But this morning my intention is to cover the last pieces of the armor, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and prayer, which is what Paul mentions as his last point of this particular portion I've just read. Now as we read this, remember now, Paul has been making a, a tremendous effort in the text to share with you and to share with me one of the most important things that we could ever know, which is who we are in Jesus, who we are in Christ. Right? Paul is letting us know in the first half of the book that, that you are saved by God's grace, that you're saved not of your own doing, but because of God's work, his effort, his 
good works, his death on a cross, his resurrection, as well as all of his good deeds. Those are the things of which has brought you to salvation. That's a tremendous thing to know our identity. It's important so that we are not shaken by every wind and every doctrine. But Paul then begins uh, the second part of the book around chapter 4. And he begins to share with us all of the different things that, that play out of that great grace we've experienced. It becomes highly practical in many ways, this book. It, it tells us how we should operate in our marriages. It tells us how we should operate as parents. It goes on and even tells us how we should practice submission as an employee or even as an employer. There's all kinds of great things to take away from the book. And Paul comes to the conclusion of the book. He uses the words finally to to let us know that he's finally going to wrap up the book. But be cautious whenever you read Paul's letters because he's like just about every other pastor that says, I will close in a few minutes. And then he doesn't. Uh, Paul in other places will say finally or he'll begin in a, a conclusion and the book will continue on. Paul doesn't do that here. He literally means finally. And his final statement is that you and I have to recognize that the life in which we live in is a life of travail. It's a life of hardship. Even if you're not a Christian, if you came into the room this morning as a non-believer, as we may say, or as an atheist or someone who is on the fringes, you will experience hardship in life as well. The major contrast in the hardship you will experience as opposed to the hardship a Christian will experience is that the Christian experiences his hardship with Christ by his side, with God as his advocate. Those who are not Christians are left alone in this battle. In fact, Scripture actually will tell us all kinds of things to be sure, but one of those things it will share with us is that as Christians we have peace. But the Advent season is coming. Christmas season is coming. We will talk about the gospel of peace. Last week, we talked about how the shoes we wear are gospels of peace. This peace that we experience as Christians is really, really quite profound. I remember the first time I actually really saw it for what it was, peace. I always thought of peace as something that was inside of the heart, a a tranquility, an easiness, a a kind of a lack of contention in one's soul, if you will. You know what I mean. The, the kind of person who can sit with themselves and be at ease. But that's not what he's talking about. He's actually talking about peace is between us and God the Father. That is to say that before we became Christians, we were in warfare with God himself. So I add to this idea of warfare for those who are not Christians, those who have not embraced Christ as their Savior. You are at war for sure. But the only one you're fighting today is God himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to fight God. I don't want to be at war with him. And I'm not. By God's grace, I'm not. I'm at peace with God. That's what it means, right? When it says sinner and God reconciled. I can't remember the exact song, right? But the sinner and the, 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 the God who is in heaven, who is perfect, we are reconciled. That's the Christmas message. We're, we're new with him. We're one with him. We're uni- un- unified with him. Now, that you are saved, what Paul is alluding to, this great reality that we do wrestle, but we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We have an enemy, and the enemy is Satan. In the text this morning, it's Satan. But as a Christian, when you are saved, right, you, you literally transfer from one battlefield to the other. Now, by God's grace, if you're saved this morning, and I hope that you are, the good news of the gospel is you are no longer at war with Christ. Woohoo! You are at peace. But the, 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 the discouraging news to a certain degree now is, though, that you've changed the battlefield. You now are in a different kind of war. You're no longer fighting God. You're you're fighting the devil, you're fighting your own flesh, and you're fighting the system of the world. You theologians call this our, our enemy thrice. I like that word, thrice. Three times over, right? We, we have our flesh, which isn't of the spirit, that's at war with the part that's the spirit, right? All of us have temptations that we want to lean into. All of us have temptations we've even fallen into. That's the flesh. The enemy is against you. Satan wants to destroy you. That you should be familiar with. And then there's a system in the world, an overall spirit of the age, if you will, in the world that is against Christianity. That is why when you turn on the television, no one will discuss solving humanity's problems with the words spiritual battle, faith, Christ, or anything in that realm. 
we're trying as humanity to fight battles with tools against an enemy that just simply will not work because it's not against flesh and blood. Now, Paul, after mentioning the shield of faith and, and, and talking about all of the other pieces of armor, such as the shoes and the breastplate of righteousness, he now comes, and, and this is really part of the message this morning, one of the main thrusting points, putting on the helmet of salvation. What is Paul saying here? You've got to keep your head together. Right? If you're going to go to war, you should have some kind of a plan. Yeah? You should maybe think a little bit strategically. And so what Paul is doing here, uh, in essence, I believe, is he's letting the Christian know to fight the enemy, to fight uh, against the devil and the flesh and the world and the system that is against you, to, to, to be victorious in this battle against Satan, one must keep their head together. One must have a, a clear, broad understanding of salvation. And I love this because, because when we talk about salvation, you've got to put on the helmet of salvation. The first question you should ask if you're a Bible student is, okay, what is salvation? Now, it might be easy to look at that and go, well, it's just God saving me from hell. And I think it's really unfortunate that a lot of Christians' basic understanding of Christianity is just to be saved from hell. There's a, a young guy who came to me recently and, and has shared with me, and maybe you've been in this boat. I just... I am really, really, really scared to go to hell. Anybody scared about that idea of hell? Right? I mean, you get images of fire and torment and death and, right, the devil sitting on a, on a big red chair with a big, you know, fork thing in his hand going, ha, 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 I have you, right? Like, that's kind of the idea of what hell is. This, this eternal, we understand hell as eternal separation from God. That's what hell is. Hell isn't so much about the fire and the brimstone as it is an eternal separation from God. And salvation, when we talk about salvation, it's so much more than just being saved from hell. Hear me, church. You don't want your theology to end with, well, I was saved from hell. It's so much more than that. In fact, when you, when you think about the idea of salvation, just in Ephesians alone, just in Ephesians alone, it talks about salvation in the broad sense of what it really is. Salvation in past, salvation in present, and salvation in the future. Some of you are aware of this great theology of salvation. That is to say, in, in Ephesians 1, before you did anything wrong, before you had the opportunity to even say yes to Jesus, Ephesians 1 says that Jesus Christ predestined and elected you before the foundation of the world to bring you to salvation. Another real fancy way to say that for me, or another real simple way to say it for me, is that when Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, he knew exactly who he was dying for. Your name was on his mind as he was dying on the cross. You specifically, that's why Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because he knew that his ugly pain, his ugly sacrifice, the bleeding and the beating was going to provide for himself a new pure bride and you're it in the room. He knew you would be here and he knew you would sing to him this morning. How cool is that? But then it goes further. It says you were saved, right? This means that Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, the gospels in those first three chapters, it's already laid out. The head of the snake is going to be crushed by your offspring, Adam. Salvation past. Salvation present. Right? Helmet of salvation. It's in the past. Helmet of salvation is also present. What does that mean? This is the salvation part the Bible talks about, which is your sanctification. Right? You know what I mean by sanctification. God grows you. That's all that word means. God will grow you. Then there is you will be saved. I don't have time for it this morning, but just know this. The Bible says you were saved, you're being saved, and you shall be saved. The shall be saved is your glorification. One day, you're going to get a new body. And someone told me this morning in January, they're going to get a new hip replacement. It's only going to last so long, right? But when he gets to heaven, he's going to get all kinds of brand new dancing hips. It's going to be wonderful. <clears throat> It'll be great. Salvation is, is broad, and we need to understand its broadness. We should study salvation, the, even the study of what's called soteriology. I love that particular uh, aspect of study. But salvation also means restore, uh, restoration, I'm sorry, restoration of broken relationships. Meaning that you now have a right relationship with God, but God gives you the ability to be in good and correct relationships with one another. 
And, and this is the eternal life that God gives us. And it's eternal life that is filled with liberation, freedom, forgiveness, and hope. Right? That's what salvation is. It, it liberates us. It frees us. And this is something that the Bible is saying, put this on your head. Have the forgiveness and hope of God on your head and the full scope of God's work in, in your saving. You were so important to God that he planned the entirety of your salvation even before you were ever, ever born. And the importance of this helmet does at least two things. One, it secures our minds with truth. It reminds us that our thought processes and our mindset plays a significant role in our spiritual well-being and how we navigate life's challenges. Let me say that again. The helmet of salvation reminds us that our thought process and our mindset plays a significant role in our spiritual well-being and how we navigate life's challenges. What does that mean? It means, it means that, 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 that I need to understand that what I'm thinking, what I'm meditating on, and what's going in my brain will have a significant impact on the way in which I live for God and will have a significant impact on what's happening within my own peace of mind. In addition to that, the helmet of salvation helps us counter lies, doubt, negative thoughts, deception, discouragement, and false ideologies that will distort our thinking and that will lead us astray from God's security and truth. One of the number one ways that Satan will attack you is to get you to doubt God's truth to have negative thoughts about who you are, to be deceived in false doctrine, to be discouraged with false ideologies, and to have your, dis your thinking distorted. Satan wants to get in your mind and tell you that you really aren't saved. Do you know that's what he wants to do to you? Again, I had another gentleman come to me just recently and say, I don't know if I'm saved. How do I know if I'm saved? I don't want to go to hell. Here's the deal. When you read scripture and you read passages like Ephesians 1 and 2, you can't help but get to this place where you finally realize that if I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and I can declare that with my mouth and if I believe that in my heart and that this Christ went to the cross for my sins and exchanged my sins and gave me his righteousness, if I believe that, guess what? Your security is as sure as pudding pie. I don't even know if that's a thing. It's just what popped in my mind. Pudding pie is a real sure thing. I could have thought of something way better than that, but you're going to leave here as solid as pudding pie. Now here's the deal. Scripture is repetitive in its attempt to get you to understand two things. Yes, you're saved by faith. We talked about that last week. You have a shield, and it's your double protection. You have a shield of faith. However, the Bible never tells you, especially when you walk into the door on a Sunday mornings, to take your brain out of your head, set it to the side, disengage from it, and just follow your heart and have faith in whatever the pastor says. No, no, no. The Bible is replete with engaging your brain. Lots of people say, yeah, but Jesus used like ordinary fishermen and they weren't even educated and stuff. They weren't educated. That's what, how we say it in the hood, right? The disciples were not really educated people, right? Just 12 common ordinary men. Now by God's grace and good news, are we not totally thankful that God uses just common working blue collar fishermen to change the world? I'm excited about that. My father was a mechanic. That's, that's, I'm blue collar as it gets. I'm all about blue collar people, right? Like, let's, let's save those people. However, most of the New Testament was written by one of the most intellectual people on the planet, the Apostle Paul. He, he was schooled in Greek. He was schooled in Hebrew culture. And he uses all of this education to, and I think the Bible is perfect. Well, you, the Bible just wants to use dumb people. No, the Bible wants to use dumb people. And the Bible wants to use smart people. The Bible is not prejudiced towards your intellect or your schooling or your background. He wants to use you for the kingdom. But whether or not you consider yourself lowbrow or highbrow doesn't mean a difference to me. What, what, what really matters here is that we understand we have to engage our heads. I know you need more Bible verses and not just Jesse's opinion to really take this to heart so, or to take this to head, whatever. 
Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the world. Well, you know that verse. Don't look like the world. Don't act like the world. Don't talk like the world. Don't buy things like the world does. Use your money the way that that Christians should use your money. Use your body the way Christians should use your body. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by what? Renewing your mind. Which tells us that something has to happen almost on a daily basis when it comes to this warfare, that when I put on the helmet of salvation, though I'm always in Christ, I need to make an effort to uh, renew this thing in between my ears. There's more verses on this. How about this one? Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. This is the Bible's way of saying when it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to life in general, don't trust your own understanding. Don't don't try to figure it out on your own, but set your mind on the things of heaven. Seek God, seek faith, seek, seek where he is and he will lead you and guide you. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So there's a mind that Christ has, a, a heart of humility, a heart of service, a heart of unity, a heart of relationship and reconciliation. Have this mind among you. Think about them. I like how Peter says it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds. Prep them. Right? Nobody goes into battle and, and doesn't prepare beforehand. I mean, for crying out loud, I just had a, a big old youth group airsoft thing that I participated in, which just so if we're really honest, I'm now at the age where I don't want to participate in those things. Okay, for lots of different reasons. One, I just don't move like I used to. Two, everyone at that event knows I'm the lead pastor. So guess what I'm running around with? A big flipping target. Shoot the pastor. Now, when we went to go do airsoft, there is a preparation. I mean, it's ridiculous. You set up tables. You've got your ammo. You've got your special ammo loaders. You've got your right magazines, right? If you've got an air, the little air ones, you've got to have the right air set up. You've got to have a mask, right? You've got to have a, a, a protection and gloves. I don't know if you've ever taken an airsoft BB right there. It's enough to call out to the good Lord just <laughs> in the name of Jesus right? It hurts. There's a whole preparation that takes place. And the Bible is saying, okay, if that's just for an airsoft battle, imagine what it's like in in the battle for your soul. Do you prep? My wife will tell you, she cannot function as a homeschool teacher and as a pastor's wife unless she spends a certain amount of time praying and a certain amount of time studying. It's the only way she can get through it without killing me. That's just my opinion. But she prepares her minds. And I like what Peter says here, right? He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. So it's not enough just to have faith. It is for salvation. But once you have that faith and you have salvation, because you know that salvation, you prepare your minds to actually do something for that salvation. That's why we're taking time during December to encourage you to pray, invite people, and share the gospel with those who are lost. That's why we're saying it this week and not just the week, the week of because we want you to start preparing your mind now. Preparing for battle because as soon as you share the gospel seed with somebody, the Bible says that that seed's gonna land on different kinds of soil and it's only through prayer that we can trust that that seed of the gospel will land in the right soil and not be choked out by the world or choked out by, by the cares of the world or fall on some other area of the soil that it's not gonna grow. 2 Corinthians 10.3 that we walk in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons are of our warfare, our warfare, not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. That's our own sin. He, he then goes on, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. You know what he's saying there? There's an opinion the world has that's, that is considered lofty and wise. Right? The world says, this is how you should think. But we destroy those arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. You know what that looks like? That looks like, that looks like the Lord, I'm sorry, that looks like Satan coming to you and saying, you should doubt your salvation. You shouldn't go to church. I've heard all these over the years. Some of them, I've been saved for, for so long, I can't even believe some of these things still exist, but they do. I've heard of people who don't come to church because they feel like God doesn't want them here because of what they did the week before. I'll come when I get my life together. 
Once I start getting things together, I'll, I'll start coming to church. What a ridiculous statement that is. Would you do that if you broke your arm? Hey, man, my arm's broken. Can you see the bone? I can see the bone. You gonna go to the doctor? Nah, I'm gonna wait until I get it together first. That's dumb, dude. Go to the doctor. That's what church is. That's what being in a relationship with God is. I have a broken arm, arm Lord, and the Lord's like, well, I know. Glad you're here, right? And, and, and then this reality of, of, of taking every thought is taking that, throwing that, that's what taking it captive is. Take that thought. I, I, I doubt my salvation. Throw that in the trash and then use God's truth to remind you of who you are. And again, the Bible's really purposeful. It's why you have to study this thing. It's why you've got to read it. Because then he goes and he says, okay, take every thought captive, right? Because you have a helmet of salvation. And then he, he goes from our head to our hands. And he tells us now to carry the sword of the Spirit. That we have an offensive weapon. Now, several years back, five years ago or so, six years ago, I, I preached a message on, you know, one of our core values is his word. That, that is, we do what we do through his word, right? That's the Bible. And uh, I, I can't remember how or why I was teaching this, but I was teaching uh, on the word and I brought up John Knox. John Knox is, uh, I've really come to really enjoy John Knox. I, I told you a little bit about books. You can buy them earlier. And the, Stephen Lawson has this wonderful book set uh, on different biographies of different reformers, John Knox being one of them. This is the one I'm talking about. And, and in that particular book, and hi historians will tell you about John Knox, he, he became a, a great theologian and great Bible teacher. He was a reformer, but he also protected the queen uh, with a sword. And it was told of John Knox that John Knox used to preach with a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. And I, I made some kind of joke about how, hey, if you want to buy me a sword, I'll, I'll literally carry my Bible in one hand and I'll preach with a sword in the other. And so after I preached that message and I said what I said, someone came to me and said, hey, guess what? I got a sword out of the deal. So th this is one of my favorite gifts that I've ever received here as a pastor of the church. And it's from a family here. And I had mentioned you know, the, the, the whole sword thing. And they came in and they gifted me this. And what made it even cooler as a Lord of the Rings kind of a nerd, this, this sword is from the movie, uh, The Lord of the Rings. It's an exact lepric, uh, uh, replica uh, of the sword that chopped off the fingers of Sauron, if you remember the, in the movie. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. <laughs> and uh, and when, I, when they gave me this, I've literally been waiting six years to get to Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> just so I could bust this bad boy out. Six years. Here we are. When I first pulled it out in the first gathering, someone yelled out in fright, that's illegal. Uh, no, it isn't. Unless you kill somebody. Then it's okay. So <laughs> the Bible says, listen, this is what the Bible is. In fact, the Bible actually of itself, describing itself in Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What we're told of this particular book is that it's unique and it's special. Now, what's really interesting about this is you, you take this particular sword and, 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 and it is kind of one of those things that stands out, right? This hangs in my office. I get to look at it every now and then and it reminds me of of the power of the word of God. It reminds me that, that God's word can do something that's really amazing. But, but I want you to understand something. This isn't what he's talking about. This is far too large. This is a big boy sword. <laughs> but the Roman soldier sword of which he's speaking of actually was probably more along the lines of 12 to 18 inches long. It, it much shorter than this. And the reason I think that that's important is because the Bible of itself is letting us know when it talks about being a sword that it's definitely not a club, right? Like, like when you use the word of God, it requires some precision. That blade that is smaller that I'm speaking of was more of a precise blade, like a surgical blade. Hebrews tells us that that's the purpose of the actual sword. It's not this thing that you just throw around. Don't ever just throw your Bible around. It's not a club. You don't beat people up with it. That's not what it's intended for. 
but it's like a surgeon's scalpel. It knows what it's doing. It's precise. It only cuts away that which it needs to cut away. And when we think of what the Bible does in our spiritual lives, Hebrews gives us even more detail on this when it uses the words of joints and marrow. Now, I had the great privilege this Thanksgiving of being the turkey carver. I'm right at that age now where, where the traditions are beginning to, to move away from the past generation are now beginning to be handed off to the new generation. And so it became a big deal, right, for, for me to begin to carve the turkey as kind of the, 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 the patriarch of the family to a certain degree now. It's crazy for me to think that I'm becoming that person. Right? Like, I, I, it's just weird. Life moves on. And, and so the first year that it was transferred to me, uh, I used, my, um, I used uh, some kind of, like, deal to cut at a knife, right? That's what you call it. And I just started hacking pieces of the turkey. Because I figured meat's meat. <laughs> just started throwing it. My mom got all mad at me, right? So, so at Christmas time, my mom, my mom bought me uh, one of those electric knives. Because the only thing cooler than a knife is a knife with an engine. <laughs> and so I, I looked up YouTube videos on how to do this. So this year, you know, being the kind of student that I am, I, I grabbed that turkey and I did everything that YouTube told me to do. And, and I realized after carving that turkey that, that as you, especially when you go to the legs and the wings, when you start to begin to, to cut that meat, there's a, a particular kind of separation that you can naturally see. And then if you follow it right, you're going you're gonna to cut into there and, and, and you're going to get that, that bone off. But every now and then you might hit a bone, it gets really rough, right? Especially down into the joints. And now listen, listen to what he says in Hebrews again. He says that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it has the ability to cut through joints. I saw this on Thursday. The hardest portions to cut are right through the joints. The Bible seems to be telling us that the word of God knows how to cut even into the hardest parts of one's heart. The addictions you can't get rid of, the things that are stubborn in your life, God's word knows how to cut through the most stubborn people. You know the people who say, I'll never go to church. Keep saying it. Like, keep saying you'll never come to church. Like, God has the ability to cut through anything and everything. But then he says, it also can cut through the marrow. Now, I don't know if you realize this about marrow, but marrow is very soft. Again, it seems the Bible is saying, listen, God's word, when it comes to spiritual warfare, knows how to cut out the hard parts of your life, and God's word knows how to cut out the parts of your life that are weak and soft and mushy. You have no hope of really preparing your salvation and preparing your mind on this earth unless you begin to become a student of God's word. And it isn't that complicated, friends. All kinds of pastors and theologians make this a real complicated thing, and it isn't. It first just starts by reading. Could you just start there? You go, where? Go to the book of Mark, one of the easiest gospels to read. Very simple, very powerful. And when we use the word of God, and we don't have time for it this morning, but we can use the word of God in every aspect of our warfare. We can use it with authority and confidence. Here's one of the things I've realized as a pastor of over 20 years. I don't have to defend God's word. I don't have to convince you that it's authoritative and true. I think it was Spurgeon who said, God's word is like a lion in a cage. Quit defending it. Just let it out. That's what God's word is. You share it, you preach it, you teach it, you quote it, and it does something. It has an impact. Why? Because it's living and it's active and it doesn't return void. We must preach the word of God anywhere and everywhere that we possibly can. That's why the gospel shoes are important. Why do we need correct shoes? To take this word on every terrain, every corner of the globe, every unreached people group that we can think of, we go there and we use the word of God with confidence and faith that it will have an impact on those who hear. Because it tells us that faith comes by and hearing the, the word. We overcomplicate it. It's why it frustrates me that there are churches that do not open their Bibles. They just don't. Right? And they're they're neutering the power and the impact that the gospel and the word has. If I fail to be using the text, I fail for real power to be in this room. I, I think it was Martin Luther who realized, it was Martin Luther who said, listen, 
Listen, the, the papal system, the church, the Catholic church has it all wrong. And, 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 and Luther stood up against the Catholic church and said, I have to teach the word of God. And he literally said that the, the, church, the church has an authority and the church's authority is the Bible. And that was such a big deal because guess where all of the authority lies in the papal system? The Pope. The Pope literally can tell you that the word, the Bible means one thing, and then he can change his mind and tell you it means something else. One Pope can say something is a sin. That Pope can die. And then another Pope can be resurrected in his place and then say, that's no longer sin. And now it's no longer sin because the Pope said so. That's ridiculous. That's man-centered religion. What we teach here is that I don't have authority. Our elders don't have authority, not in the sense to change lives. God's word has authority. The church operates under the word of God. Its volunteers operate under the word of God. Its congregants submit to the word of God. Right? It's the word that has all the power here. That's why, again, it's Sierra Bible Church. We were going to call it Sierra Jesus Church, but I wasn't alive. I'm just kidding. And we use it as proof. And we use it to bring happiness in our lives, to bring rebuke and repentance, to help us mortify our sin and to help us to grow in the knowledge of God. Friends, you've been given a tremendous gift that is the Bible. Uh, in fact, some of you will know, how many of you have ever stayed in a hotel room? Anybody? You stay in a hotel room, if you lie in your bed and you just go to probably the left or to the right and you open up one of the drawers next to the bed, what will you find in there? A Gideon Bible. The Gideons have been, as an organization, have been putting free Bibles in hotels for as long as anyone can really remember. And if you open up the Gideon Bible, the sword of the Spirit, and you go to its opening pages... On just about every Gideon Bible, this is what you will find on the inside of the Gideon Bible before you read it. And it describes for us the importance of this sharp-edged, two-edged, very precise sword that has the ability to discern into our thoughts and our intentions. Listen to what it says. The Bible contains the mind of God and the state of man. The way of salvation the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven is open, and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Isn't that good? We have a gift, friends. A gift of God's spoken word. It's why we stand when we read it. Again, not because we're religious, but because we recognize the power in which this sword has in it. We believe in it to teach us of salvation. We believe in it to help us fight. But then he gives us at least two other pieces of warfare, and then we'll close. The second offensive aspect we have for our warfare, as he goes on, he says this in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. There's an encouragement that we would pray for one another and that we would pray in every situation and that we would pray without ceasing. You know what praying without ceasing looks like? It means you don't just close the closet at home and pray. That's good. It means, it means praying without ceasing means literally right now as I'm preaching, you're praying that God's word be, would be illuminated. Just in the back of your mind. 
You may be even just saying in the back of your head, Lord, thank you that I have a church family. Thank you that, that I had money to eat today. Thank you that I had Thanksgiving. Thank you that Christmas is coming. It may just be gratitude that you share. You know, while I preach every Sunday, I am praying without ceasing. It's a simple little prayer, an easy one. It goes like this, help. <laughs> Lord, help me. Guide me. I don't have authority. I have to admit every single week, I can't do the sanctifying, glorifying work that God intends without the Spirit's help. I am useless without this as my companion. I need this. You need this. It's how we fight. And we take these words and we pray for each other and we pray as often as we possibly can. We rejoice, we're thankful, and we, we, we get rid of our anxiety that way. We should be a praying church. Again, this is why we're doing what we're doing in December. And then lastly, he says one last thing. Look at verse 21. One of, well, first of all, I, want you to, I do want you to see in verse 20, one of the things he's asking for prayer is that he can preach God's word and gospel boldly. Could I at this time just petition you as part of my family to pray this exact same prayer for me? I need your prayers to be able to expose God's word as he intends. But then look at verse 21, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. He wants the Ephesians church to know him relationally. Remember, it's not just, it's not just the brain. It's, not, it's all relationship. I want you to know how I'm doing. So he sends Tychus to him, and he goes on and he says, look, he's going to tell you everything. And I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that you may be encouraged in your hearts. That is the other offensive weapon. Encourage one another. Paul, after writing this letter and after visiting this church and planting the church and putting Timothy in charge of it, he literally is like, I want to come and I want to see you, but I can't come right now because I'm in prison, so I'm going to send one of my best buddies to you, and he's going to encourage you in the faith. He's going to tell you that I'm doing well even though I'm in chains. The church needs more positive-thinking, gospel-centered, radical-blessing kind of folks, right? We don't need more criticism. We have plenty of it. We don't need more people pointing their fingers. We have plenty of that. Like if we're going to point our fingers, we need people who are going to point our fingers here. Like when someone messes up, we don't go, oh, you messed up. We go, thank God you have someone who knows your mess ups and forgives you anyways. Right? We don't push that mess up back in their face and say, oh, I'm going to hang that over your head because Christ doesn't hang it over your head. You know the sin you committed last night? If you're a Christian, Jesus has already put it as far as from the east as the west. You may be tripping on it this morning. And that's why you need to enter into battle. That's why you need to get your mind right. That's why you need to study the word so that you can't allow Satan to get into your head and tell you that you're not good enough to serve. You're not good enough to be here. You don't deserve anything. You're not good looking enough. How many of you woke up this morning, looked in the mirror and went, dang, Jesus did a good job. (laughs) Right, I I know what it is to be a human being because I am one. You looked in the mirror and you thought, I mean, every now and then I look in the mirror after aging as I've aged now, and I'm like, dang, dude, like fine wine. <laughs> no, I'm not that, not that way. We all have our insecurities. Satan wants you to doubt yourself. He wants you to doubt your relationship with him. He wants you to doubt everything. That's what he was in the business of doing all the way in Genesis. Did God really say this? Adam, Eve, did, did God really say that you shouldn't eat that apple? Isn't that what Satan's going to do with you this week? Did God really say? Did he? Yes, he did. And the reason he said it was for your joy. And if you would live according to his promises and, and his commandments, you'll find so much joy in him. And I pray you find that liberation. If you don't have it, pray you find it. Because really, there's no better way to live. Ephesians started out by bringing us into the heavens. Right? You were predestined and saved before time. It's like, it's like Paul just took us to a journey to the, to the gateway of heaven, and he sat us down in the heavens. And then he ends by bringing us down to our knees. Enter into the heavens. Come back down to planet Earth. Get on your knees and pray for God to do amazing things among you. And guess what? He's done it. I look forward to it. Would you stand with me as the worship team comes forward and comes forward and we pray?
Lord, help us to be people of prayer. Lord, I know it's at the end of this book, but it is something that we're called to do on such an, a regular basis. You tell us to do it without ceasing. Lord, the encouragement here is that we would always be talking with you and that we would always be listening. As it says here, that we would stay alert. Because we need to be alert, Lord. I know, I know every Saturday night you're trying to attack me, you're trying to attack my family. Satan is, not you. But, but I know, Lord, you're, you're there and you're guarding and protecting. I know Satan tries to attack us on Sunday mornings too, and I'm sure that's the case for so many in this room, if not everyone. Ah, you can skip a Sunday. Well, Lord, it's so much more than that. It's, it's not about skipping something or checking a box. It's about being in a relationship with you. So help us to see that. Help us to see that you want to walk with us. You want to be with us. Lord, so much so that this armor is, is a description of how we are completely hidden in you. Lord, that literally, when we became Christians, we slipped on the person that is Christ. So we can say things like Paul did. It's no longer I that sins, but the sin that dwells within me. Oh, God, thank you that I'm not identified by my sins. Thank you that in your eyes, you have completely ripped the sinner away from the saint and that all you see standing before you this morning, not only upon me, but upon everyone in this room, is their sainthoodness, their holiness, and their purity. I pray that we would be encouraged with that and that we would leave here willing to fight the battle, put on the helmet of our salvation, carry the sword of the Spirit. Pray at all times without ceasing that we would stand firm and be encouraged. We trust you for it. In Jesus' name, the church said amen. Amen. Let's sing as the deer. song.